Amen. We'd love to have you open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, uh, first book in the New Testament. And uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. This is a, a stretch of Scripture we're just going to be parking in over the next few, uh, few weeks here in this series we're in, just moving through uh, chapters 8 and 9, these amazing stories of, of, of Jesus uh, healing, healing people who were, uh, who were in need. So excited. If, if you need a Bible, there are red Bibles <clears throat> around you on the row you're in. If you uh, have an, a device you want to follow along in, you can do that too. I, I believe the page numbers, it's like 880 in those red Bibles. You can use the index at the front or you can, uh, you can just look over the shoulder of somebody sitting next to you. So that's totally cool. How's everybody doing? Everybody doing all right? Good deal. Good deal. Everybody enjoying the sunshine? This is like, this is fantastic. We were at a... Uh, grad party last night, and it's like, man, it's, it's like 75 degrees, and there's no wind, and the sun is shining, so yeah, just, just amazing, amazing. So, I um, want to just highlight one verse before we get into the, the actual text for this morning, one verse in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. This is a verse that like we, we can really easily just kind of gloss over it. Uh, in fact, I've, I've done that most of my life. And, and never realize the connections that Matthew, and like the other gospel writers, like a lot of times they, they leave breadcrumbs for us. And these breadcrumbs will, will, will point us um, to these Old Testament stories. So, so one of the things, it's, it's a discipline we can learn to do is to read the New Testament with Old Testament eyes, to hear the New Testament with Old Testament ears. And when we do that, when we know the whole story, all of a sudden, it's like the picture of Jesus just sort of opens up in some cool ways that we've never seen before. So I think that's what Matthew is doing here in, in Matthew 8, verse 1. And it's because this is what he says. It says, When Jesus came down off the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Jesus comes down off the mountainside and begins to, to speak and minister to people. Now, there's a story in the Old Testament. Um, about another mountain where a man of God goes up on the mountain to meet with God, to hear the words of God, and comes down to begin sort of meeting with the people and telling them what God says. Does this remind you of an Old Testament story? Does an Old Testament story come to mind? Anybody? Does it... Anybody? Moses, exactly. So there's a story in the book of Exodus, uh, the story of Moses, where God is gathering the people in. He's gathering these, um, these people who have been slaves. He's gathering, it wasn't just uh, people who had been in slavery. It was others in Egypt who left with them. They come together. They're in the desert. And, and God is forming them into a unique people so that they would fulfill his missionary purposes in the world. His missionary purposes of, 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 of spreading this message of, of his life and love to the ends of the earth, to all people. And so Moses is the leader. He goes up on the mountainside and he meets with God and he, gets, he receives these very words of God and he comes down with these stone tablets and the words of God are sort of carved into the stone tablets, right? And so Matthew, he says these words. He says, when Jesus came down off the mountain. And I think what he's doing is he's, he's leading these breadcrumbs to, to help us realize that one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's being a new Moses, He's a new kind of Moses. But where Moses came off the mountain with these tablets made of stone, excuse me, with the words of God written on them, Jesus is different from that. That Jesus doesn't go up on the mountain to receive the words of God. He goes up on the mountain to speak the words of God. 
And as Jesus comes off the mountain, he is the Word of God. That Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. That Jesus is what God has to say. This is a really powerful thing if we, if, we, if we get this. That if we want to know what Jesus, if we want to know what God is like, if we want to know the kinds of things that God does, if we want to know how God treats people, we look at Jesus. That Jesus is what God has to say. Does that make sense? So Jesus is kind of functioning as this new Moses, not with the words of God written on stone tablets, but Jesus is the word of God in flesh. In fact, Jesus never wrote anything that we know of except some words in the sand in John chapter 8. So that's kind of cool. It's one of these things that Jesus was not an author. He did not write books that have survived and you know, have come to us, and we study the writings of Jesus. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that because Jesus is the Word of God. We look to him and his teachings and his life and his example, and we say, this is what God has to say. So Jesus is the new Moses in this way. He comes down off the mountain, and he is the Word of God moving into the world. But the second thing is Moses comes down off the mountain, uh, and his face, everybody remember what was going on with his face? He was glowing. He was like radiating. He had, he had glory burn. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. He had this like just radiating from the, from the glory of God that was like sort of coming off of him. And people saw it and they like were amazed by it. But Jesus doesn't have that. Jesus, there's nothing about his physical presence that's like, oh my goodness, there's this glory coming off of him. Um, but again, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his very being. So Jesus is, like as he moves into the world, he is the glory of God and the exact essence of what God is like. So those things are always like really cool for me uh, to just say like, this is what Matthew is saying about Jesus. He's this new Moses. He is, he's doing something brand new <clears throat> in the world. And so we look to him. So now Jesus, he, uh, he moves off the mountain and he begins healing people. He, he starts this, this ministry of just healing broken people. And that's why we're titling the series Amazed. Because like to see the things that Jesus did, like our first response is just amazement, right? That, 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 God, that God can heal, that he can restore things that are broken and hurting. Um, in fact, like we would, we would miss something if we didn't recognize that part of Jesus' identity was the healer. That one of the reasons people looked to Jesus, that they came to him, that they, the crowds came to him, was because he was the healer. And we still believe Jesus is the healer. It's, healing is not something that Jesus does. It's not like something separate to who he is. But healing is actually a part of Jesus' identity. It, it's part of the very nature of who he is. Jesus is the healer. He was a teacher, but he was more than a teacher. He was kind of a, a sage, but he was more than that. He was a healer. And so these, these two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, they just tell these 10 stories of healing, um, the, this miraculous power. And, um, and in fact, there's a summary statement at the end in Matthew 9, 35. And it says this. This is what Matthew is, how he summarizes these chapters. He says, And Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So what we want to do is as we explore these stories, we don't just want to hold them at arm's length 
and say, you know what, that's really cool that, you know, like Jesus healed this particular person. And and, because that's one thing we can do is we can read these stories and we can sort of hold it at a safe distance and we can learn about it. But we don't want to settle for that. What we actually want to do is we want to actually come to Jesus the healer. Like we want to bring ourselves into his presence, our our physical bodies, because some of us are in need of, of healing. And we believe that Jesus is the healer. Some of us are in need of emotional healing, that we have these wounds in our soul, and we, we, we come, we bring those to Jesus, the healer. We have spiritual needs, and we come to Jesus because we believe that he has the power to heal, that he is the healer. Now, um, so we're going to create some space at the end of our service this morning to do that, to just recognize our needs and to, and to come in the presence of Jesus. But I want to say this is anytime we talk about miracles, anytime we talk about healing, there's this like, there's this check that many of us feel inside of us. And I know this because I feel it as well. There's this check that says, well, um, but what, what if it doesn't happen? Like what if miracles don't happen? Uh, there's this check inside that is very skeptical of anything that can't be explained through rational means. Anybody else have this? this you hear a story of a miracle and you say, oh, there's probably an explanation. There's probably something that, you know, happened that that maybe the doctors missed it on the scan in the first place and there was a mistake and so when they went back the next time, it was really just a mistake. How many of you, like, let's be real honest, anybody else feel that? I feel that often. And do you know why that is? It is because we have been raised, and here's the deal, every one of us has been raised in a worldview. We have been conditioned By this thing, we are a product of the age of reason. The age of reason was this this season uh, of time when people moved out of what they call the dark ages um, into, we we talk about it as the enlightenment, right? And the enlightenment is this season where we said, you know what? Um, There is this scientific discovery that begins to happen, um, and and these major advancements in how we understand the world uh, from, from like, massive world, the cosmos, to, to like tiny things like germs and microscopic organisms. And so um, we, we, we have this like sort of age of scientific discovery, and it is beautiful and good. In fact, science has brought us so many wonderful gifts. Do you know like the life expectancy is decades longer than it was several hundred years ago? Is this a good thing? Everybody happy about that? Like, there are periods in church life where I'm, like, I'm, like, past my life expectancy in my mid-30s as a man. And so science has brought us wonderful things. It has brought us medicine. It has brought us uh, democracy, things like this. So, so we're very, very grateful for this. But here's the problem, is what the age of reason did is it put a lid on how we understand the world. It said God has given us these, these gifts to be able to understand things scientifically, but if we can't understand it using these observable methods, what we can sense and what we can explain, it's not true. That make sense? So it's not saying this is bad. It's saying the lid should not be on the way the world works. That there are things that happen in our world that happen outside of the context of this reason and logic and um, things that can be explained through scientific methods. Does that make sense? So, so here's what I want us to just understand is most of us have grown up in this bubble. It's the thing that has raised us. It's the thing we've learned. And so we, be very, we become very, very skeptical of anything that happens outside of that explanation. 
But the other thing I want us to recognize is this is not the worldview of the Bible. The, 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 the Bible is not, did not come to us from a worldview of, of, of science and reason. It actually came to us from this perspective that says, actually, God is at work in the world and God is not just like a wallflower somewhere who's standing outside of history, but God is actually at work in the world, and God moves, and miracles happen. And so we have to understand that there is this dissonance between the world we grew up in and the world of the Bible. Everybody cool with that? All right. So um, let's, let's, uh, let's jump into this story. So Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 9. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and asked him for help. So a centurion's a Roman uh, officer. He's, a, he's a, a Roman military leader. Probably a centurion would, would mean he had the uh, authority over about 100 soldiers under him. Um, and he's a Gentile, so he's an outsider, right? Uh, Jews had very strict rules. They, they divided the world into two categories. They're insiders like us, Jewish people. And outsiders, that's everybody else, it's Gentiles. And, and so they were very, very strict about how you related to people who were, who were outsiders, who were Gentiles. So this guy, he's a Roman military leader and he's a Gentile. But he comes to Jesus asking for help, verse 6, and he says, Lord. I mean, this is like this symbol of surrender. Like, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. So obviously he's heard that Jesus is the healer, right? He comes to him, and he says, verse 7, Jesus says to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to this one, do this, and he does it. Uh, I say jump, and they say how high. And when Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. So like this whole series is based on like us being amazed at Jesus. And here is a story about Jesus hearing the response from this Gentile Roman centurion. And Jesus is amazed. And, and so what was so amazing about this guy's faith? Like what was it that made Jesus marvel at him? Well, first of all, I think it had something to do with his humility. So you've got a, a Roman soldier who has power, right? I, I love this picture uh, of just like this Roman soldier with, with power, with weapons, with control, that he has, he has the say-so of the Roman military behind him, right? I mean, he has the power to give commands and people respond to his commands. Um, he has the power to do the bidding of the empire. He has the power to kill but he does not have the power to heal. Like Here's this man who has, who has this incredible power bestowed upon him, but he realizes that my power only goes so far, and I don't have the capacity to meet the needs of my friend, my servant, who's laying sick and suffering. Here's where my power ends, and I need help from someone else. I think this is a beautiful picture of our relationship to Jesus. That we have power. I mean, we have power in our lives that, that people in previous generations, previous centuries couldn't have imagined, right? We have power to say, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to go to school, get an education. I want to, you know, whatever it is. I want to make decisions, change the trajectory of my future. People in previous generations and previous centuries, they didn't have those options. What did you do? You grew up and you did this thing that you were always intended to do. You took on the family business. 
So you have power. We have resources. We have access to the world. We can travel around the world. We can see things people never could have dreamed of before. We have all of this power, and yet we have to admit that our power cannot meet the deepest longings of our hearts. That our power only goes so far, and it doesn't have the capacity to heal our broken souls. And so like this centurion, he comes and he lays down his power and he comes and he comes to Jesus and this picture of him kneeling before Jesus and he says, Lord, Lord, I need, I need your help. I need you. And so maybe there's some of us this morning that like this is, this is the thing for us from this whole passage. He's just saying, I have been trying to power my way through this. Like I, I've been trying to just sort of tough it out and persevere and push through and to pretend like this thing isn't hurting me and, and it isn't, um, you know, it isn't, um, I'm not carrying these burdens. We try to power through it. And, and the invitation today is just to stop and to just humbly, like, take the posture of this centurion, come before Jesus and saying, Jesus, I, I, I need you. I need you. And, and here's the beautiful thing. is like the, the, whole, the whole Bible, the New Testament especially, says, like, when we're weak, 2 Corinthians says this, like when we're weak and when we acknowledge our need, it's at that moment of surrender that the power of God floods into our life and we become strong. So maybe that's the invitation today, is just to recognize that our power has come to an end and we are weak and we need the presence of Jesus. So Jesus, he, he responds to him and he says, um, he says, shall I come and heal him? Shall I, like, shall I come to your house and heal him? I mean, do you hear what Jesus is saying here? There is this insider-outsider boundary. Jews, like Jesus, do not cross the threshold of a Gentile house and come under their roof or they will become unclean. There are strict rules about this. And Jesus says, well, like, do you want me to come over? Because I'll come over. Do you just want me to come heal him? What, do you, what does that mean to you if you see yourself as an outsider? In fact, people have told you you're an outsider. And Jesus says, do you, do you want me to come over? Because just say the word and I'll be there. Like, do you hear the kind of love and acceptance in Jesus' voice that he looks past all of these things this Roman soldier has, Roman centurion has wrong, and he sees his need, need for his friend, and he just offers to come to his house. It's beautiful. So, so Jesus is crossing these insider-outsider boundaries. He's breaking them down. He, he's this living example that God's love does not know these insider-outsider boundaries. And Jesus, his interaction here, it sets the stage for the church 10 years later for, for Peter, the leader of the church, to go into a Gentile's home, the home of Cornelius, and to realize that the Spirit of God has fallen in this place and, and to open up the church to Gentiles as well. Yeah, outsiders are welcome. So this, this beautiful thing Jesus is doing. So this is how the centurion responds. He says, no, 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 I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. So he uses this word authority. The word authority is the word exousia. Everybody say exousia. You guys have been so quiet. You need to talk. Exousia. That's, that's, uh, that's the word authority. And it, it, it just means you have the power to do the thing you say you're going to do. Like if you say it, you're going to do it. You're as good as your word. That's what exousia means. And Matthew uses this word a lot throughout his gospel. In fact, the end of the gospel, Matthew 28, is Jesus saying what? All exousia. 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So this idea of authority is a big deal. It's a big deal for us as a church, um, as the whole church. But the Roman centurion, he recognizes, he says, like, you have authority. You have exousia. What you say and what you do, there's complete congruity. I had a guy one time tell me this. He said, this church we used to go to, there was a pastor, and he was like, he was such a great preacher, but he was a really horrible person. He was like, I was like, oh, hold, hold on a second. Like, how, how do those two things go together? Like, how, how can you be like a really good preacher and a really horrible person at the same time? Like, there, there's an incongruity there that doesn't work. It's like saying, oh, this person is such such a wonderful follower of Jesus. They're just a toxic person to be around, and they will tear you to shreds when you're not looking and talk about you behind your back. How many of you know, like, those two things don't go together? A- anybody? Okay, good, good, good. So, so Jesus has this complete congruity between what he says and what he does. And this Roman centurion looks at him and says, um, I, I am a man who's under authority with soldiers under me. Now, I think this is the reason Jesus looks at him and was amazed at his faith. I think this is the reason. Because notice what he doesn't say. The centurion doesn't say, I'm a man with authority, and Jesus, I think you have authority. You're a man with authority too. The centurion doesn't say, I'm with authority. He says, I am under authority. What does that mean? As a Roman soldier, who authorizes him? His commanding officer. And who authorizes that person? Their commanding officer, and their commanding officer, and their commanding officer. His authority comes from higher up, and you keep following the chain of command up to the Roman Senate. And who sits on the throne of the Roman Empire? Caesar. So he's saying, I am under the authority of the Roman Empire, and I am under the authority of Caesar. And that's the thing that gives me the authority. And he looks at Jesus and he says, and I believe that you are under authority as well. That you have been authorized by a higher power, by the one who sits on the throne of heaven and earth, that you are authorized to do the work of God in the world. He is making a profound statement about the identity of Jesus. He's saying you are God's anointed. You are the one who has come into the world to make things right, to heal broken things, to begin God's work of of turning the world, turning the world back toward God of easing the pain of this broken, broken place. He's making this massive statement. That's why Jesus says, not even anyone in all Israel has recognized this. And here's an outsider, a Gentile, a Roman centurion who recognizes this man is the presence of God. Does that make sense? That Jesus is under authority? How many of you, if you were walking down the street today and somebody said, "Um, I need to see your driver's license, how many of you would turn that over? What gives you the authority to ask me for my, my identification, right? What if this person had a badge? Would you, would you give them your driver's license? Anybody? Yes? Why? Because they've been authorized to do this. Their badge symbolizes that they've been given authority from, uh, from higher up, that they're operating on behalf of, uh, of a larger 
power source. And so this is what this man recognizes about Jesus. I believe that your authority comes from on high. I believe that you are God's anointed. And it's this powerful statement about his identity. He sees the glowing face of Jesus, that he is the radiance of God's glory. And Jesus, when he heard this, he was amazed, and he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel of all the insiders who have had such great faith. And so I say to you that many are going to come from the east and from the west, and they will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, this weeping and gnashing of teeth is just, it's a symbol of great sorrow and great anger. Sorrow and anger. He, he, he uses this whole thing and he says, like, there, there are people who have felt outside and who've been made to feel outside. They're, they're from the east and the west. And they're actually going to find themselves sitting at the table in the presence of God. And, and it, they're going to be overjoyed. And there are going to be those who, who got all of their identity and value from making others feel like outsiders because they were so certain they were insiders. And they are going to be full of deep sorrow and deep anger. Do you, do you know the story of the, um, the prodigal son? Right? There's a story of a man who has two sons. The younger son takes the inheritance, runs off, squanders it. But he comes home, and the father welcomes him, and he, he uh, throws this massive party. But the older son, right, who is the insider, who always stayed home, always did what was best, what, how does he respond to the younger son's party? He's furious. And you know where the story ends? The, the older son is in outer darkness. He's standing out in the field, and he's gnashing his teeth in anger. Because his position has been taken away. He's angry at God's grace. And this is what Jesus says. Like, there, there are going to be people who have always been made to feel outside, and they're actually going to be on the inside. That this kingdom of God that Jesus has come to initiate, it's an all y'all can eat banquet. How many of you have been to an all you can eat banquet? Those are my favorite kinds of banquets. I like going to grad parties. Thank you for graduating. Um, and for having an all-you-can-eat buffet. Um, but how many of you have been to an all-y'all-can-eat banquet? Who's welcome at this thing? All y'all, right? This is the picture of the kingdom of heaven. Like, it's all y'all can eat. It's come. It's you are welcome here. This Gentile centurion had everything wrong. He had everything wrong except the only thing that mattered was his faith in Jesus. The only thing that mattered was his faith in Jesus. There's the only one thing that matters is this, this willingness to come and to surrender to Jesus, to his authority, and to place ourselves at his feet and to say, Jesus, we need you because we don't have what we need to meet our own needs. It, our, our last names, they don't really matter. Our heritage, they don't really matter. Who our parents were, it, it doesn't really matter. All of those things, they, can, they could have been good, they could have been bad. But the only thing that matters is the faith of this man, this Gentile centurion who comes and puts himself at Jesus' feet <clears throat> in the place of need. And Jesus said to the centurion, go and it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. That very moment. So, um, here's what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to just create some space as we, as we kind of end um, the teaching, as we worship team will come back up. Um, I'd like to just create some space 
to, to, for us to receive a touch from God in our lives. Um, to, to say, like, you know, we, we may have a point of need, again, physically in our, in our own bodies, it's a point of pain, or, or emotionally, like these deep wounds we've been carrying, spiritually, we just feel, we just feel dry and burnt out and tired. And we don't just want to talk about healing. We don't just want to study it and learn about it. We actually want to, we want to experience it. And so um, before, before we do that, um, I think there, there are two dangers. One is we can see prayer for healing as almost like a divine vending machine. You know what God is? God is kind of like this vending machine in the sky. And if we put the right amount of change in, I, I don't know that any vending machine still takes change. Right? It's like a credit card or like dollar bills. Like when I was a kid, it was like 35 cents. Get whatever you want. So, but, but here's how we think about God. Okay, we have this need. This is what we want. Um, we, we need to be healed. So we need this you know, Snickers bar, you know, A7. So if I put the right amount of change in and if I press the right button, I'll get the right result. If I pray the right way and if I have the right amount of faith, I'll get what I'm asking for. How many of you have heard this sort of like God is a vending machine? is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. I've seen people walk away from faith because of this. I've seen people spend their, their life savings and then some because they just, like, man, if I, can just, like, if I can just find the right person who can pray the right way, then my loved one will be healed. I've seen people uh, go, through, go through years of trauma because my loved one wasn't healed in the way we thought they should be. And they, they, they passed away, and I blame myself because if I just had more faith, they would have been healed. This is incredibly dangerous. If this is your view of God, if this is your view of prayer, please, I'd invite you to let that go, to to drop that view of God because it's actually manipulation. It's manipulation. But so sometimes, um, sometimes with with healing and with prayer, is we we say, you know what, because I'm not certain though, I'm not certain that God is going to heal a person the way I'm asking for, what I'll settle for is certain despair. Because, because I've prayed for people in the past and they weren't healed, and I'm not certain that God is going to heal, what I'll settle for is certain despair. I won't even pray. I won't even bring my needs to God. And we can, we can just fall in one of these two extremes. But the third option I like to propose is the option that this Roman centurion took. It's the option that the leper that we talked about last week took. It was the option of persistent trust, of just coming like a someone who, who, who believes that Jesus cares about them, of bringing our needs to him and, and um, not presuming we know what God is going to do, but making our needs known. As a parent, if my child has a need, I want them to come and I want them to talk to me about it and I want to do everything I can to, to comfort them, to meet that need. And so that's what I like to make some space for us to do. The worship team is going to start to play. If you're, if you're um, in a place where you have, you have some kind of need, physical, emotional, spiritual, would you just stand? We just have the courage to either raise your hand if you're not able to stand or to, um, to just stand to your feet. your hands out in front of you. Um, 
actually for the rest of the, the congregation, I'd invite you to, would you stand with these folks? And if you don't have a need, maybe, maybe you have a need of, just like this centurion of, of his friend who is laying um, at a distance and was suffering, like maybe you have somebody in your heart, in your mind, who you're actually standing in their place. And if you don't have anybody like that in your life, what, what I want to invite you to do as a congregation is to just hold Jairus and Sheila and their family in your heart and in your mind in these moments. Jairus and Sheila just lost uh, a child, Joel, who we've been praying for and is now in the arms of Jesus. And when you pray for Jairus and Sheila and their, and their girls, that God would just be with them and would heal their hearts. God, we stand here God, humbly just bringing ourselves, our whole selves to you. That for those of us who are standing because our bodies hurt, they're broken, and we've been living with this pain, and it steals our joy and it robs us of, of life. God, we just come to you as a child coming to their father who loves them. And we just ask, God, that you would meet us in this place of you. Jesus, we trust that you, your touch, your words, God, have the power of life. So we bring our need to you, God, just, just humbly believing in your authority and your power to bring to you into our lives. God, we, we come with deep wounds in our, in our souls, wounds that we, we've tried to kind of patch up, but it hasn't worked. And so, God, we need you. God, our power has come to an end, and we are here this morning to just humbly, humbly surrender to you, Jesus. God, would you meet us in this place of need? God, would you speak your words of life and bring healing to these wounds? God, would you, God, extend your hand? God, would you touch us and, and restore us? God, we believe that you are the one who spoke the world into existence. You are the one who is making all things new. God, make us new today. God, we pray this in, in your name. God, we surrender to you as Lord. We surrender to you, Jesus.